All right, so um, we're going to go straight into the text. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to Philippians chapter 1. Um, this is a short passage for us today. We're just going to be reading from verses 27 to 30. Okay, um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And it says this. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, this is our passage. um, And we're going to be continuing in our series in Philippians, as you know. And what we see here is Paul's actually shifting gears a little. Okay, Um, Throughout this entire letter so far, Paul's been referring to his own personal experiences, right? He was sharing with uh, the church at Philippi, like, this is what I'm going through right now, right? He talked about his imprisonment. He talked about um, his rivals in preaching the gospel. He talked about his desire to be with Christ, but at the same time, his duty to serve the people at Philippi, right? And last week, we talked about what to live as Christ means. And today, for our passage, starting from verse 27, Paul shifts gears and he starts to speak into the context and the lives of the Philippians, right? So he's switching from talking about, talking and sharing about his own personal experiences and what he's going to do right now, he's going to start addressing the church. So he's going to, well, the passage that we just read, he addressed his circ- their circumstance and um, we see his very first command in the letter in verse 27, right? The very first imperative by his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a command. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, right? That's the first command that we see right there in verse 27. So our church, we use the ESV translation. Um, I generally love how the ESV translates both the Hebrew and Greek. But for me, this is one of the very few times where I actually prefer a different translation of this passage. Um, I think this is probably a good time to briefly talk about the different English translations we have of the Bible. Um, If we can just go to the next slide. Um, This is kind of like a graph that I got from, um, I I think this is another translation. It's called God's Word translation. That's a cool name, God's Word. Um, And this kind of shows you a spectrum, a range of different translations that we have in um, the English Bible. Now, to the left, we see more strict, um, literal, word-for-word translations, right? So that's the NASB, the New American Standard uh, um, Bible, and we have the ESV, right, which is the translation that we read. And if you go all the way to the right, um, there's translations that paraphrase um, the different verses in Greek. So rather than translating um, each word in every verse word-for-word, right, um, these paraphrased versions, actually, they group uh, different chunks of verses together. So for our instance, they, they would group verses 27 and through 30 together, and they would just paraphrase a simple English translation um, that's kind of easier for us to understand in our, our context, in our day and age. Now, um, 
the question is, why would you want to look at a paraphrase, like a less literal uh, translation? If our goal is to understand what the author is trying to communicate, um, wouldn't you rather use a strict word-for-word translation, right, to see, for instance, this letter at its purest form? Well, here's the thing. We're not Greek people, right, living in AD 60. Uh, we're not familiar with Greco-Roman culture. Uh, we're not, we don't know their language. We don't know how they use their idioms or different figures of speech. Now, let me give you an example. Um, since February, um, I have completed eight different Korean dramas, okay? Uh, before you judge me, each of these uh, series, they're just one season, okay? So I didn't watch like multiple seasons. So you can consider it as eight seasons, not too bad. Um, if you're proficient at Korean, and if you watch Korean dramas, you know that the English subtitle, right, for like Netflix, for instance, it's not perfect. It's not precise. Now, if you don't know me very well, I'm actually pretty terrible at Korean, but even I can pick up some of the translations that aren't as precise or accurate. To be specific, there's one translation of a word that I don't like. But I understand why they would translate it this way, but I, I don't like it. And the word that I'm referring to is the word oppa. All right? Now, the literal translation for the word oppa is older brother. But it's strictly used by females referring to their literal older brothers. Um, males, on the other hand, if we want to refer to our older brothers, we say hyung. But culturally, this is so interesting about Korean culture, Korean, most Korean females would refer to just an older guy as oppa, friend, usually friend, not acquaintance, even if this person is not a biological brother. Because Korean culture, if you didn't know, is very familial. Like, for instance, at restaurants or at stores, it's actually pretty polite to say, Omoni, or mother, or like auntie, emo, um, to older women who help you or who, who serve you. Now, to make things even more complicated, the word oppa has a different connotation as well. You know where I'm going to. You know what I'm alluding to, rather. Females in romantic relationships would call their significant other oppa, which I think is really weird. Why would you call your boyfriend like older brother? That's like super weird, right? I don't get that. But this is why in some situations, um, females would actually refrain from calling another guy oppa just because of that romantic connotation. Or conversely, they would say oppa referring to a different guy in front of another guy just to make him jealous, which I've seen happen many times in uh, watching different Korean dramas. Now, out of all the eight Korean dramas I've watched on Netflix... Right, uh, with the English translation, I need, I need translations, I need subtitles. Every translator translates the word oppa to refer to the name of the character that the female is addressing. For instance, um, I watched this Korean drama called Prison Playbook. It's not that great, but I'm just going to use it as an example. Um, the female lead, her name is Jiho, she would refer to her significant other, Jaehyuk, as oppa. But when she says oppa, right, the name Jaehyuk would appear on the translation. And I'm just like, okay, I, I, I see what you're doing, right? You don't have to write older brother. Just write, my thing is this, just write oppa, like, and make the viewers learn the culture because the translation can be a little misleading. Now, at the end of the day, does it matter? Not really, right? Because we know who the character is addressing, who the character is referring to. But if you paraphrase, right, and if we... Um, so here's the thing, like, 
the point that I'm trying to make is this. Translations are difficult at the end of the day. Translations are difficult because if you're too precise and literal, it can be confusing since we don't know their context. But if you paraphrase it and if you make it more relevant for your readers, what happens is this. You can lose the intended meaning and the weight of what the author is trying to say. Now, going back to our passage, what is Paul talking about when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel? Well, the verb that Paul uses here in the Greek can be better translated as, uh, rather than let your manner of life be worthy, it can be better translated as um, live as a citizen or be a citizen, which is why I actually like the NLT translation of this part of the verse, which goes like this. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Kind of interesting, right? Um, kind of meaning the same thing, but one has a different color to it. Paul could have said this many different ways, and it would have conveyed the same meaning, of course. But why did he use this verb, to live as a citizen? Why did he frame it in this way? In order for us to understand that, we kind of have to understand the context of um, the time in, you know, in Philippi, the, the culture and the context that Paul is addressing. People of Philippi who were ethnically Greek, they were granted citizenship to Rome. Uh, they were extremely proud of not only their rich cultural heritage and being Greek, um, but they were really conscious and proud of their own Roman citizenship because during that time in the Roman Empire, not a lot of non-Romans were granted citizenship. Now, with Roman citizenship came lots of privileges. Um, if you were a Roman citizen, um, you had great tax benefits, you had protection, you had right to own property, and there's also a unique rule that Roman citizens were never to be crucified, right? So if you had a death penalty, you would never be crucified. Kind of interesting. At that time, the best citizenship to have during those days, hands down, was Roman citizenship. So Paul understands this, and he kind of knows this dynamic happening with um, the Philippians. So what is Paul saying? Paul is pretty much saying, live as citizens of the gospel. Live as citizens of the gospel rather than citizens of Rome. In other words, Paul is saying, care more about your identity as a citizen of God than being a citizen of Rome. Because how you live reflects who you are. So remember your identity as a follower of Christ first. This means that we're called to be different. We're, um, we're not called to blend in with unbelievers. This means that the way we live and the way in how we carry out our lives should look distinctly different from how the rest of the world lives. And Paul, what he's going to do, he's going to unpack what that means um, all throughout this letter what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So I want to ask this question then. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, especially during our time and age? Paul, as he continues on in this passage, he gives us two specific applications on how to live as citizens. The first one is this. Be united against opposition from the outside. Be united against opposition from the outside. Now, out of my, what, 30 plus years of living, I think today um, this is the most dangerous time for Christians. Generally speaking, I think this is the time where Christians can, rap especially in America, can rapidly fall away from the faith. 
And honestly, maybe I'm being skeptical, um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a huge drop in church attendance after this pandemic is over. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that there's going to be a mass exodus of Christians leaving the faith here in America. Why? Well, I think that way because right now there's a huge lack of accountability because of the pandemic, of course. Um, there's limited face-to-face interaction. It's, it's hard to meet with um, small groups. Um, any kind of like serious conversation you have to have, it's kind of hard to do it over Zoom, right? Um, I know a lot of uh, therapists, when they do counseling, they have to move it over to Zoom, and that's kind of not effective. In a similar manner, it's hard to do life groups. It's hard to do small groups. It's hard to confess sin and to give and to receive accountability through video chat. Not only that, there's a lack of engagement on digital Sunday services all across the board, right? There's stats that show that, um, you know, not a lot of people are joining in on the stream, right? Not just our stream, but just like streams all across the board. And in a, just to add on to that, there's so much division that we see in the church, so much division. Not only do I see the normal bashing of Christians by non-believers, but I see Christians bashing other Christians, and I'm just like, I'm seeing this all over like the internet, right, social media. And I'm thinking, dude, we're supposed to be on the same team. Why are we fighting each other? So I think that Paul's command to the church at Philippi is so timely because now more than ever, we must fight for unity. We have to fight for unity. We have to preserve our unity. Now, what does this unity look like? Well, Paul mentions this, uh, this verb, standing firm together. Standing firm together, he also says striving or contending with one another, with one spirit, one mind. Now, if you look at these words, there's a lot of military overtones. And the first thing that I thought of when Paul was saying standing firm together, like fighting side by side, right, with one another, it was the movie Gladiator, right? I'm sure many of you have seen Gladiator. Um, I thought of the scene with, like, you know, the Roman armies with the shield, they would lock up together. Um, But there's actually one scene um, that really captured this image for me. Uh, When Maximus is caught and he's in the Colosseum fighting with um, other barbarians, right? Um, He says this to um, the other men that that are fighting with him. I'm not going to do the accent because I'm going to butcher it. Whatever comes out of these gates, we have a better chance for survival if we work together, right? Emphasis on work together. And he says, do you understand I'm trying so hard not to say that. We stay together, we survive, right? So there's this emphasis on working together. And lo and behold, there's this one tough guy that thinks he's like the best person ever. So he doesn't go into the shield formation. He does his own thing and he almost dies. So guess what? Maximus has to save him, right? The idea is that if even just one person doesn't follow along with the game plan, it's going to hurt the whole. In order to be victorious, every part needs to be in sync, working together, standing firm, side by side, one spirit, one mind. Now, what does this all mean? I mean, we're not like, you know, in the army, we're not like fighting an actual war. But I think this, we need to share the same objective. To be of one spirit One mind means that we all have to have the same goal. What is this goal then? The goal, the directive, is to make disciples. 
what keeps us centered and dialed in on that goal? It's the word. It's prayer. It's accountability. So how can we do this then? How can we stand firm? How can we be united? How can we stay focused and dialed in on that goal and making disciples? Well, one application came to mind for me, and it's this. Be mindful of what you consume. Be mindful of what you consume. Uh, Here's what I mean. There's a lot of information and content available to us right now. Right? With social media, anyone can post and be a certified expert as long as, well, you have a couple thousand shares and likes. It's crazy because nowadays, your reliability is not based on evidence or facts, but rather, your reliability is based on how much clout you have. The more likes you have, the more shares you have, that means, oh, you must actually be pretty legitimate. So one of my favorite authors, uh, Christian authors, uh, his name is Brett McCracken. He's coming out with another book. Um, he came up with this thing called the Wisdom Pyramid. The Wisdom Pyramid. Um, and we'll, we'll post it right there. This is what it looks like. Um, it's kind of like the Food Pyramid, right? But it gives us um, kind of like a priority of the different things that we should consume. Um, the food pyramid is kind of funny because you shouldn't eat that many carbs, right? It's bad for you. But the idea is that carbs give us energy, right? Um, so with this wisdom pyramid, actually, um, Brett McCracken, he kind of breaks it down on the things that we should consume the most. The number one thing we should be consuming is the Bible, right? Our daily bread. Um, the greatest wisdom and the knowledge that we should seek after first and foremost and to have a lot of intake of it is the word of God. We need that. That has to be our main diet. After that, we have the local church tradition. This is um, theology that's been written over the centuries. Um, this is, I would include, you know, John Piper in this, Tim Keller, right? I would include even um, our pastors, our elders, right? I would include um, even our parents, right? Discipling our kids. Um, that should be the, the next level of consumption, right? Um, the smaller level, I can, it decreases as you go. Um, the next level is nature and beauty. And we see Bible verses like in Psalm or Romans 120 where it says like nature in itself, the world reveals God's glory. And when we take that in, right? Um, so there's like examples, go outside, right? Go for a run, go on a hike, whatever. Um, when we see creation, right? We see natural and created beauty, And this is kind of like things that God has given us to enjoy in him, right? Um, I would include um, art, right? Uh, Enjoying and making art, like music, or if you're into culinary arts, right? These are good things that, like for me, when I listen to good music, right? I've been getting into like vinyls lately. When I listen to good music, and like lately I've been on this like crazy like bossa nova like thing right now. Um, I listen to it, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, like, God created this type of music. God created this, like, chord progression. And I'm just like, this is amazing, right? And it kind of, like, me enjoying these different things, like nature, if I go on a run, or if I, like, eat delicious food, I'm just like, wow. Like, God has created these, uh, the sense of um, seeing, right? The sense of smelling, tasting, hearing. Um, And this kind of makes me enjoy God a little more. Now, as we continue in the wisdom period, we see the next thing is books. And it's really healthy, actually, to read books, um, nonfiction, fiction, right? Um, this is something I should grow in because uh, I hate reading books. Uh, and then next up, we have the internet, right? This is Google, Wikipedia, 
right? Everyone is an expert on like uh, whatever you want to be in because we have the internet, right? And um, there should be limited consumption of that. And lastly, we have the fats and oils, right, of the food pyramid, the wisdom pyramid, um, social media, right? Um, this is so interesting because in America, we, we consume a lot of fats and oils, right? Um, it's so interesting because, like, our large size is double the large size in other countries. <laughs> it's crazy. And for us, I feel like similarly to how we consume fat and oils, um, we, in America today, we consume, like, Twitter, Instagram, social media, right, all this other content, um, like it's, like, the Bible, right? And the thing that kind of makes me a little nervous, to be honest with you, is the fact that we're leaning into that a little more than we're leaning into God's word. We have to be careful on the content that we consume. Because if we're so open, if we don't establish walls and boundaries to filter out bad information and good information, we're going to turn very secular. We're going to turn like the world. And we're going to lose our unity. I have something to say just for believers. Um, If you're not a believer, this doesn't really apply to you. But I want to say this. Brother or sister, I say this lovingly. And I'm saying this to myself as well. If social media is your main diet and you're really not in the word and in prayer, your advocacy for social justice will not be sober. Yes, God loves justice. Of course, we see that in the Bible. He has a special place in his heart for the widow, the orphans, the foreigners. And yes, you may even have good intentions. You can fight for a good cause. But apart from the guidance that the Holy Spirit gives us, your move, your act of social justice will be poorly executed. Apart from the Holy Spirit moving in your life through the word, through prayer, through accountability, chances are you're going to be coming from a place of judgment and contempt rather than compassion and empathy. I mean, do you think scorning others and calling people out will bring change? Do you think that's winsome? Do you think starting debates and fights on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram will actually lead to the change that you're looking for? Do you think that makes our society better? Yes, we should totally care about all the injustices happening all around us. It's true. All right? And in, in some sense, Christians, we should be like the first responders to that, to injustice. But if you want to make change in this world, your first step is to correct the injustices in your own life before you call out others. That's how the gospel works. We have to look at ourselves and the way and how we fall short and how we need the gospel before we bring that message to others. For us to guard ourselves from that, we have to be in the word. We have to be in prayer. We have to be in community, even though it's limited, even though it's digital. So that's my application. Be mindful of what you consume. Um, we, we have to be creatures of the word. We have to consume and feast on the word. That has to be our main diet. 
So Paul, as it continues on, um, again, the first way in how uh, we're able to strive for unity is to, or, or to live as citizens, rather, is to strive for unity against, you know, um, the opposition that we face from the world. From the, world. Um, the second thing is this. This is the second way in how uh, Paul says we can live as citizens. Um, be courageous. Be courageous. Um, he's saying, look, don't be afraid of the opponents, all right? Um, don't be afraid what, with what they can do. And what Paul is talking about here when he's describing opponents in verse 28, he's not talking about someone that you have beef with. He's not talking about someone you don't like or someone you disagree with. When Paul refers to this word, opponents, he has a very specific people in mind, and it's people who are against the gospel. Those are the true opponents that we have as a church, right? Not some annoying person that you know, right? Not someone who doesn't agree with your political views. It's someone who is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the opponents of the church. Now, Christians in this time, they were heavily persecuted in the first century, and they faced a lot of pressure that came from the outside. Paul, what he does, he knows this, right? And he's been through his own share of persecution. He says, look, he, he wants to comfort them, and he says, at the end of the day, God will vindicate you. As he goes on in verse 28, he pretty much says this, your faith and endurance in your persecution will reveal the saving grace that you have. Right? It's a sign of your salvation. Whereas for your opponents and their acts of oppression, right, their acts of injustice to you, will reveal the judgment that they will receive. It's a sign of their destruction. Paul also says, hey, you know what? Suffering is also expected for Christians. In verse 30, he says, like, just look at my story, right? It's normal for you to engage with the same type of conflict that I'm actually going through right now presently. I'm I'm in jail. Paul is normalizing suffering in the Christian faith. And here he echoes Jesus in saying that persecution should be expected. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you should expect to be persecuted. Now, although in America we don't go through the same type of persecution um, that they went through, or even other Christians around the world are going through, um, to be frank with you, we're actually pretty blessed. But at the same time, I still think that we face a similar social pressure that um, the church in Philippi faced as Christians. They were also criticized for their beliefs. Um, The church at Philippi was criticized for their practices um, and, you know, today, when I look at that, we're, we're criticized a lot, aren't we? We're criticized for our views on the LGBTQ community. We're criticized for our views on sex. We're criticized for our views of salvation, believing that there's only one way to live life and there's only one saving um, God. We're criticized for being hypocrites and bigots. We're criticized for being silent when it comes to racism. There's all this criticism that we're receiving as a church. And to add on to that, right, I feel like we're losing. You know, do you feel that? Like, I, feel, I just feel like we're losing. And I already mentioned earlier that churches around the world are struggling. Um, not only that, missions is being halted because of the pandemic since a lot of the workers are back home now. And, you know, there's news of, like, more reports of pastors falling into sin. And for me, I'm thinking, dude, I don't know. It feels like the gates of hell are prevailing over us. Like, I'm just like, this is how I feel, to be honest with you. I feel like Christianity is losing in America. And right now, and like our life group, right, my, my life group, we share this. We, we, we all feel like Satan is having a field day with us right now. But when I look at this passage, the word of God reminds me 
that everything we're facing as a church should not be surprising. We are called to suffer. I mean, if you want to become a Christian, salvation and suffering is a packaged deal. It is. You get both if you say yes to Jesus. You can't just have salvation without the suffering. It's a packaged deal. It comes together. And at the end of the day, what I have to realize and what I have to put my mind to is the fact that Jesus won the most important battle for us on the cross. There's many battles we face here in life, right? And many times we feel like we're losing. But I have to point my eyes to the fact that Jesus won the greatest battle against sin. And we have hope. And you know what? Nothing will ever take away that hope that I have in Jesus. Nothing will ever take away the salvation that we have. I want to leave you with this, church. Be courageous. What I mean by that is standard for the gospel. And I know it's really hard because we already know like, how we're looked at as Christians by the, by the rest of the world. Um, but I want to encourage you, you know, be bold. Don't be afraid of how you're received. And I think God is giving us many opportunities to talk to our non-Christian friends, to talk to our non-Christian coworkers, to, to talk to our non, non-Christian family members. And, you know, I want to encourage you today, let's engage in some constructive dialogue. Because a lot of what I'm hearing today is people talking at the same time, right? There's no dialogue happening, right? People are just so obsessed with um, letting their own views come across before they listen. And, you know, like, let, as Christians, let's engage in dialogue, which means let's actually listen. Let's hear what other people are saying. And, you know, let's respond with the gospel. Engage in constructive dialogue. Genuinely care for the other individual Win them to Christ. Church, let us live our lives as citizens, as we stand firm, as we strive for unity, as we show boldness and courage in reaching others for Christ. Let's pray together. God, your word is so comforting and so challenging at the same time. Um, God, it's... Not easy being a follower of you. Um, God, we confess our weakness. We confess that there's so much pressure that we can just cave into. God, we confess that we are weak. We struggle with sin. And a lot of times, the temptation that we face, especially uh, with all the pressure that we have, we want to cave in and we want to be like the world. But God, our prayer is that rather than trying to be cool and rather than trying to, like, look good in front of, like, you know, non-believers, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the unity uh, to stand up for the gospel, to stand up for what we believe in, um, that, God, you would give us poise, you would give us balance, um, and that you would help us, God, to even this week to engage in some healthy, constructive dialogue with others, um, God, to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, God, we feel so weak and frail. Um, God, we need unity more, more now than ever. Holy Spirit, would you preserve us? Would you maintain our unity? This is what you want to do, God, and I pray that you would protect us and, to, and to cover us in that. And I pray that um, you would continue to give us the opportunities, especially, God, to be mindful of what we consume. Help us to consume your word. Help us to be in prayer. Help us to be in community, God. And I pray that you would give us um, just the right diet for that and even the wisdom to discern, God, um, good information from bad information. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for meeting us. And I pray that you will continue to work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.